You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. The Origins of Glocality The term glocal, spelt G-L-O-C-A-L, is a portmanteau of global and local, and is said to come from a Japanese word which simply means global localization. Originally referring to a way of adapting farming techniques to local conditions, it evolved into a marketing strategy when Japanese businessmen adopted it in the 1980s. It is said that the English word glocal was first coined by Akio Morita, founder of the Sony Corporation. In fact, in 2008, Sony Music Corporation even trademarked the phrase Go Glocal. Glocality was subsequently introduced and popularized in the West in the 1990s. The underlying concept of Think Global, Act Local claims somewhat more varied origins. In a broad abstract sense, it is captured in the ancient hermetic idea of as above, so below. The macrocosm is reflected in the microcosm and vice versa. Or as Guth put it, if we would seek comfort in the whole, we must learn to discover the whole in the smallest part. More concretely and recently, the Scots town planner and social activist Patrick Geddes applied the concept in his 1915 book Cities in Evolution, saying, Local character is thus no mere accidental old-world quaintness, as mimics think and say, It is attained only in course of adequate grasp and treatment of the whole environment and in active sympathy with the essential and characteristic life of the place concerned. Sometimes glocality maintains its geographical rootedness. For example, Neighbourhood Knowledge California is a project of the Advanced Policy Institute at the University of California, Los Angeles, which serves as a statewide interactive website that assembles and maps a variety of databases that can be used in neighborhood research. Its aim is to promote greater equity in housing and banking policy. In addition, it functions as a geographic repository for users to map their own communities by uploading their own datasets. When and by whom the phrase Think Global, Act Local was first applied to environmental issues is a matter of some dispute. It may have been introduced by David Brower, founder of Friends of the Earth in 1969, or by René Dubois as an advisor to the 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment. Also in 1979, Canadian futurist Frank Feather chaired a conference called Thinking Globally, Acting Locally. Whatever its origins, the notion of glocality has entered into the popular consciousness. It was given its most visible and practical expression when the Rio Earth Summit issued Local Agenda 21 in 1992, which was a program of action for applying the global principles of sustainable development in local contexts. Today, there is also a glocalist magazine in Austria that offers a daily online newspaper, as well as weekly digital magazine and monthly print magazine. 
In a CSR context, the idea of Think Global, Act Local recognises that most CSR issues manifest as dilemmas rather than easy choices. In a complex, interconnected CSR 2.0 world, companies, as well as their critics, will have to become far more sophisticated in understanding local contexts and finding the appropriate local solutions they demand, without forsaking universal principles. It is also a caution against applying global methods and standards without allowing for the flexibility of local adaptation and expression. This chapter explores some of the diverse ways that CSR is manifesting in different regions and countries of the world. CSR around the world. The importance of locality for CSR really struck home to me when, in 2008, and together with my co-editor Dirk Matten, I launched the A to Z of corporate social responsibility in several regions and countries around the world, from Guatemala and South Africa to China and the UK. What became blindingly obvious was that while CSR had some global principles that most countries agreed on, the local manifestations were distinctive in each case. This led me to undertake a two-year research project that culminated in the World Guide to CSR, published in 2010 and profiling CSR in five regions and 58 countries. In her review of the book, Israeli CSR expert Elaine Cohen captures some of the essence of the idea of glocality. She says, The country profiles offer a local flavour and sometimes even a local language. Tzedakah, the Hebrew word for charity. Sanpo Yoshi, three-way good in Japan. Korigia, the ancient form of sponsorship in Greece and Ubuntu in Southern Africa, which relates to community culture, to name but a few examples. International comparative CSR research bears out my personal experiences and the content of the World Guide to CSR. One of my favourite studies was done in 2006 by my Cambridge colleague Jeremy Baskin and looked at some reported behaviour in CSR of 127 leading companies from 21 emerging markets across Asia, Africa, Latin America and Central and Eastern Europe. It also compared the findings with over 1,700 leading companies in high-income OECD countries. The first finding was that CSR varies by region and level of economic development. It is highest in Europe, followed by Japan and North America, all of which are ahead of emerging markets. However, this conclusion masks a greater diversity of performance. For example, on community, philanthropy and human resource aspects, emerging markets have better CSR disclosure than North America and Japan, while on environmental issues, Japan is roughly on par with Europe and ahead of emerging markets and North America. The study also showed that among the BRICS countries, in other words Brazil, India, Russia, China and South Africa, CSR is strongest in South Africa, followed by Brazil, India, Russia and China. Two GlobeScan surveys in 2005 and 2007 also illustrate the locality of CSR. In the first place, the public was asked what is the most important thing a company can do to be seen as socially responsible? The results showed that in the US, Canada and Brazil, 
community involvement was perceived as the most important, while in Australia, UK and much of Europe it was protecting the environment, and in Mexico and China quality and safety of their products was the priority. In the second survey the public was asked how responsible should companies be held for their impact on society. The findings were that more than 80% of Brazilians hold business responsible for its performance across 10 dimensions of CSR, as compared with only 59% of British, 57% of Americans, 53% of Indians and 46% of Chinese. A study by the Reputation Index also shows considerable variance. Asked about the importance of various factors to corporate reputation, it was found that corporate governance was most critical in Chile, South Korea and Australia, while social and environmental issues were top priorities in Finland, Norway and the Netherlands, and workplace and employee issues were highest on the agenda of Portugal, Denmark and Canada. Another study by IRIS in 2007 found that the percentage of high-impact companies with advanced environmental policies was 90% in Japan and Europe, as compared with 75% in Australia and New Zealand, 67% in the USA and 15% in Asia, excluding Japan. Furthermore, it was determined that 75% of European companies operating in high-risk countries had developed a basic human rights policy, as compared with only 40% of American companies. All of these studies, and many more besides, provide evidence for glocality. CSR varies by country and by region, in terms of level of maturity, the issues prioritized, and the approaches adopted. This variation is especially evident between developed and developing countries, which has been a particular fascination for me in my work in CSR. Myths of CSR in developing countries I first tackled this question of whether the conceptions and models of CSR developed in the West are appropriate for developing countries by setting out what I believe to be seven popular myths about CSR in developing countries. Most of these myths exist as a result of the feeding frenzy that inevitably occurs every time the media has hunted down and sunk its teeth into one or other juicy story of corporate exploitation. The myths are also sustained by legions of largely well-intentioned people who have vested interests in promoting their particular brand of truth about CSR. Let's look at these myths briefly. The first myth is that economic growth is not compatible with CSR. However, what the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare and the Human Development Index both show is that GDP growth and quality of life move in parallel until social and environmental costs begin to outweigh economic benefits. Most developing countries have yet to reach this divergence threshold. For them, economic growth and the expansion of business activities is still one of the most effective ways to achieve improved social development, while environmental impacts are increasingly being tackled through leapfrog clean technologies. The second myth is that multinationals are the biggest CSR sinners. On the ground, in most countries, multinationals are generally powerful forces for good through their investment in local economies, creation of jobs, upgrading of infrastructure, 
provision of basic services, and involvement in community development and environmental conservation. The cumulative social and environmental impacts of smaller companies, which operate below the radar of the media and out of reach of the arm of the law, are typically far larger than the high-profile multinationals. Conversely, the third myth is that multinationals are the biggest CSR saviours. Not only do large companies have limited influence over government policy, but most multinationals, despite large capital investments, provide only a minuscule proportion of the total employment in developing countries. The real potential saviours are small, medium and micro-enterprises, including social enterprises, which are labour-intensive and better placed to affect local economic development. If the social and environmental impacts of these SMEs can be improved, the resulting benefits will be proportionally much greater than anything that multinationals could achieve on their own. The fourth myth is that developing countries are anti-multinational. Developing countries are often caught in a no-man's land of underdevelopment in a competitive, monetized global economy, and the sooner they can modernize and integrate, the better for them. Most often, developing country communities welcome multinationals and their CSR initiatives. This is not the same as saying that the developing world should repeat the mistakes of developed countries, such as highly polluting industrialization, or that multinationals should not be responsible and be held accountable. Myth number five is that developed countries always lead on CSR. There are countless examples of how developing countries are proving themselves highly adept at delivering the so-called triple bottom line of sustainability, namely balanced and integrated social, economic and environmental benefits. It is actually not surprising since in developing countries these three spheres are seldom separable. Economic development almost inevitably results in social upliftment and environmental improvement for the same vice versa. Myth number six is that codes can always ensure CSR in developing countries. The past few years have seen a mushrooming of corporate responsibility codes, standards and guidelines which developing countries are keen to adopt, if only to satisfy their Western partners. This standardization trend is both inevitable and necessary in a globalizing world which is desperately searching for an alternative to command and control style business regulation in order to satisfy the governance and accountability void which still exists. But it would be a big mistake for either companies, civil society or regulators to assume that this codification bears much relation to relevant and appropriate CSR practices at grassroots level. The seventh and final myth is that CSR is the same the world over. One of the biggest fallacies is that in a globalized world, CSR can somehow conform to a unitary model. Of course, we need universal principles like the UN Global Compact and process frameworks like ISO 14001. But standardized performance metrics like those of the Global Reporting Initiative and the numerous sustainability funds and indexes start to tread on shaky ground. The tendency is for developed country priorities to receive emphasis and for northern NGO agendas to dominate. <laughs>